Hey everyone, welcome to Expiration Date. I'm Michelle. And I'm David. I want to remind you that Expiration Date is an access point for people to understand and experience the modern U.S. criminal justice system. Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to welcome some new listeners that we may have. I made a post on a website called Imgur. It's a social media website that you've probably never heard of. But anyway, got some new subscribers to our podcast from there. And they might be our first listeners that don't know either me or David. So just to catch you up, we live in Arkansas. It's in the deep south of the United States. Uh, we're a big state. We're in the middle of the state. Um, it takes about three hours to drive to the top of the state. The United States is very big. Uh, we're both wearing shoes. Uh, we have all our teeth. And I was going to say neither of us had owned livestock, but I found out that David... Yeah, I grew up on a farm. Yeah. Not, not the formidable years, but like the last three or four years of high school. So there were there were some livestock, but it was mostly like a hobby farm. Mm. So, yeah. That's interesting. So one and, of us owned livestock. And, I, and I've, I've done some beekeeping before too. And I guess, would you consider that to be livestock? I don't know. That seems kind of bougie. Does it? For the South. Yeah. I feel huh? like that's really cool. I worked for a... I think that's kind of been cool. I think that's cool. Yeah. I worked for a family beekeeper who, I mean, he had about 40% of the market share in a pretty big North Louisiana park. Wow. So, yeah. That's cool. Learned some things from him. Yeah. But just so you know, for those of you who don't know about the South, Louisiana and Arkansas are very different, even though they're very similar. <laughs> well, Louisiana is very different from everyone, and I think they pride themselves on that, too. Yeah. So. They do. They do. Today, we're going to talk about mental illness and the criminal legal system. Um, we're going to get into some stuff today that, as always, uh, might be a little hard to hear, um, but we're going to try to keep the dialogue open-minded and helpful. And we ask that you also, as you listen, try to keep an open mind and, and think about it. First, I want to define mental illness. From the APA, mental illnesses are health conditions involving changes in emotion, thinking, or behavior, or a combination of these things. Mental illnesses are associated with distress and problems functioning in a social, work, or family environment. Mental illness is common. In a given year, one in five U.S. adults will experience some form of mental illness. America has a long history of institutionalizing the mentally ill. Much of the core function of our criminal legal system is to lock away the undesirables. As we have discussed on this podcast, this tends to disproportionately affect the marginalized and the poor. Currently, our care for the mentally ill is some of the worst in the modernized world. It is not uncommon for people to be denied access to mental health care because they cannot pay for it. Are you talking across the board or, or different points of access, like hospitals, prisons, private companies? Yes. So all of it is just difficult because it's not covered? In some cases, it is covered by people's insurance, but mm -hmm. usually that coverage is extremely minimal. Mm -hmm. um, and if you can afford to pay out of pocket for extra care, you can get it. And if you don't, if you cannot afford it, you do not get the care. Why do you think that is? Because we have for-profit medicine, mm -hmm. um, which is unique in the developed world. America has a system where places can profit off of providing health care. And you have to have something called medical insurance to get coverage so that... Anyway, we're going to talk about that in season three. <laughs> well, I wonder, <laughs> I wonder too if, unlike walking in with a bloody nose or a broken arm, if you walk in with mental illness you can't look at it and say well that's definitely what it is and mm -hmm. the lack of 
being able to identify it and quantify it Mm -hmm. can make it difficult for insurance companies being willing to pay for it, giving them an out, which I think is bullshit. But Mm -hmm. I mean, I still think. Well, and again, like with so many things in this country, medical insurance shouldn't exist. Like it's not fair to expect people to like insurance companies to use their good nature to like balance profits over like people. Like mm-hmm. what what do you think they're going to do? Of course they're going to maximize profits, which means they provide less care to people. It's just, it's the way the whole system is set up. And I'll say that's the way the whole system has been set up for a very long time. And I'm starting to see fissures in that where we're moving from a shareholder mentality to a stakeholder mentality and customers become a stakeholder. And you're going to see, in my opinion, companies that will put their shareholders probably up first, but are also going to take into consideration a lot of the other people, the customers, the vendors and everything. And I think that we're going to demand that. At least Mm -hmm. I hope we're going to demand that. So maybe we'll see some change. Hopefully. There are people that do have insurance coverage, but often that coverage is minimal. That is why so many people in the United States self-medicate with drugs, alcohol, and other types of addictions. By the nature of our system, the privileged have access to care, and the underprivileged do not. Our criminal legal system has always viewed the mentally ill as a burden of the state. 5-4 is an excellent podcast about the Supreme Court, and I'm going to link the episode that references the Supreme Court case Buck v. Bell. Basically, it is a century-old Supreme Court decision that formally decided that people that were feeble-minded or had epilepsy were a burden of the state. The state can institutionalize them, forcibly sterilize them. We touched on this in the last episode, but as with many things, this is a multifaceted problem. This affects men and women. Please listen to the episode as they go into depth about the eugenicists that set up many of our social programs and that are extremely foundational to our entire so-called justice system. Now we're going to enter into a section where we're going to talk about mental illness and policing. Some of the stuff that I'm going to say may hit a little different than some of the other things that we've talked about in this podcast. And I want to encourage you to keep an open mind. And again, these numbers are not something that I made up. These numbers are verified by multiple studies. Mental illness and policing. 25% of all the people killed by police are having a mental health crisis. The mentally ill are 16 times more likely to be killed by the police. Part of the reason for this is because policing in America is extremely violent. Another reason for this is because many communities have no other choice but to involve the police when a loved one is having a mental health crisis. There isn't anyone else to call. Because they are a massive part of the discussion of this podcast, I'm going to include some numbers For police officers themselves, police officers are exposed to horrific things. They receive very little, very poor training to do a difficult job. Um, When they receive this training, they're often very young. And as we have given examples of in this podcast, sometimes that training is very problematic. Specific numbers for mental illness and police officers are hard to find because the data is pretty scarce. But if you think about it, if you walked into work, came across a customer that upset you, and you choked them to death, what would happen to you? Would you go home that day? 40% of police officers are guilty of domestic violence, and in many cases they are accused and convicted and keep their jobs. They bring violence and mental illness home from work with them. I do not believe that all cops are evil. 
but I do believe that you have to work really, really hard to stay a good person and be a police officer in America. And most people just get tired. Well, you said one in four people that are killed by cops have mental illness, which is supported by your one in five people suffer mental illness a year, each year. And we want to hold police officers to a higher standard than ourselves, but we, we have to realize that that's not necessarily possible. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I guess it's kind of, for some people, depending upon where you grow up, it's like holding John Wayne to a different standard and he's not mm-hmm. any different. He killed a bunch of people on TV. Mm-hmm. Going to jail because of a mental illness or during a mental break is not helpful for most people. People say, well, what about the violent ones? Most of them are only a danger to themselves. Most just need help, and most people just don't know what to do. Their meds are taken away. They cannot tell you what they need. Jails and prisons are not safe places for vulnerable people. Many mentally ill people navigate our court systems without advocacy or even a diagnosis. Many are herded through like cows in a slaughterhouse. The statistics show that things do not end well for them. They do not get the help that they need, and the paltry social safety nets fail them over and over again. The system is incentivized to keep them in it. A lot of powerful people make money off this system. So who better to victimize? If you have someone that has trouble even being their own advocate, they can be really good for business. reminded about that story, David, that you and I listened to with Zachary Crow when we interviewed him, mm-hmm. which I hate that that audio got messed up, but he talks about the homeless man that was mentally ill that walked into the courthouse owing a $50 fine for vagrancy, and he had a crumpled up little $5 bill in his hand, and he walked out of that courthouse $1,000 in debt mm. because he was given late fees and all kinds of things, and he will die indebted to the state. Mm. Okay, we're going to switch gears a little bit and talk about some things that you might not typically think about when you think about mental illness in the criminal legal system. Law enforcement has a long history of using comfortable narratives to further their own power and influence and funding. They use vulnerable people to do that. Typically, young, mentally ill, brown, and male. So this part's weird, and I don't really know how to... Because it's such a weird... Like, no one thinks, no one's going to believe me. <laughs> no one's going to believe this. Okay. Let's get it out there, and then we'll see what happens with it. I'm going to link another podcast that I listen to. It's Citations Needed, uh, and they're a podcast that criticizes media. And this is from episode 31, Fake ISIS Plots and the Selling of Forever Wars. So the FBI creates fake websites, fake email lists, and fake promotional videos for Al-Qaeda and ISIS, and they target mentally ill young men. Javid Sheik is a 29-year-old from North Carolina. He lived with his parents. He had never been anywhere. He had never done anything. And he ended up on one of these email lists and started corresponding with a young woman that he thought was a Syrian ISIS member. Um, She was not. She was a federal agent. And he fell in love with her and decided that he wanted to go live with her. So the FBI bought him a plane ticket and he went to the airport and was arrested for going to join ISIS. Now, 
all the headlines say local North Carolina man gets arrested to join joining ISIS when really Javid Sheik never talked to anyone from ISIS. He was targeted because he was vulnerable and the people who run the FBI know that the more stories that are in the media about them thwarting terror plots keep Americans afraid of ISIS and Al-Qaeda. Let me ask a follow-up question, if this is the time for that. Yes. Like, and you see this in some of the other social services that the government provides. There are people like Javid mm-hmm. who fall prey to the system, um, but how are we at at actually stopping true attempts at that too? Like, is it just, are they all shades of what really happened or or, are we just hearing about those? And how do we, how do we differentiate them? In a lot of cases, most of the things that we see as American media consumers are like places like the Washington Post and things like that. What they do is they just reprint the press release from the FBI. Mm -hmm. They don't really do a lot of critical thinking. Um, They don't do any digging into it. And the only reason that we know that is because people are looking into those sensationalized headlines because they know that ISIS and Al-Qaeda, they are not a threat to everyday Americans. However, when you have to sell a war to the American people, you have to give them a threat. And ISIS is a very convenient one. As we're selling a war to the American people, it sounds like at the same time the politicians are talking about bringing people back from the war. Mm-hmm. How does that reconcile? You mean like bringing soldiers back? Soldiers home. Well, <laughs> the increase in private security forces is by far outstripping the removal of American soldiers. So places like Blackwater and things like that, America people who work for people that run the American government are still there. Sounds like Blackwater is using the American military system as a free training and onboarding. So you go straight from military service, which you are in the area. And then Mm -hmm. when you get brought home, can get onto the private sector as a mercenary. Mm -hmm. Or, and if you do something really, really bad, like you get scared in a town square and kill a bunch of innocent people with your machine gun for no reason, you get pardoned. It's great. It's a great system. (laughs) Sarcasm. Another egregious example is Emmanuel Lutchman. Emmanuel Lutchman was a homeless man who used to find cigarette butts on the ground and smoke them outside of a mosque. He hatched a plan with three co-conspirators to carry out an attack on New Year's Eve in the name of ISIS. However, the only problem is, is that the three people who planned the attack with him all worked for the FBI. They drove him to Walmart to buy a knife. They gave him money to buy the knife and they drove him back to his house to make a video about how he was going to stab people on New Year's Eve. After this video, they arrested him and the press had a field day with headlines such as foiled terror plot when all it really was was a homeless guy that didn't have any money. He didn't have any transportation. How do entrapment laws play into that? All they really have to do is give them an out. They just have to say, you know, you don't have to do this at some point. While they're, it's not entrapment if you do that, apparently. So Hmm. it's, uh, I really would encourage you to listen to this episode because it really made me think, this episode of Citations Needed, it really made me think about 
mental illness and the federal government in a whole different way. Because mm-hmm. I think it's pretty obvious, yes, our the criminal legal system is going to hurt mentally ill poor people more than anybody else. However, this is a whole different, that's a whole, that's using mentally ill people to not only get more funding, but to sell the atrocities that we're committing overseas. And I think what I want people to understand is that the way that the American government runs things, the things that we do to other countries are brought home. Just mm-hmm. like earlier when we were talking about how police officers bring that violence home, it we bring it home. And it it it's so, so evil. I'm thinking about what you said about bringing it home and the policies we use internationally or the policies and procedures we use here as well. And I think they're kind of both can be both grounds for learning and doing on each side. So that's, I mean, it's an interesting thought. It's a good political spin about how this is bad and this is bad and what they're doing is bad, but yeah, we're doing it here as well. Mm-hmm. I wonder to what degree, if any, the two people you mentioned would have moved forward with anything without the, the coercion of the government. I mean, we're told to, to watch out for phishing scams on emails and that stuff. Cause it is, but little do we know that we're being enticed or people are being enticed by our own government to just to kind of see. And that's one thing we're going to get into a little bit when we talk about, cause we're going to talk about the alt-right and its ties with mental illness later on in the episode. And, we do kind of tackle some of that. Like what, how can you excuse the behavior of Emmanuel who did honestly think that he was going to attack people with people who do the same thing, but from the alt-right. Mm-hmm. Intercept did a study that shows that 70% of terror plots in the American media are at least influenced by the FBI. There is no real ISIS here. There is no real Al-Qaeda here in America. Online radicalization is not new. Another kind of online radicalization that has been in the headlines lately is the alt-right and QAnon. Americans expect their fascism to show up bold in a pristine Nazi uniform, twisting its pencil mustache and asking, where are your papers? But none of that is reality. In many ways, fascism is insidious. QAnon is shockingly similar to the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which was a hate speech pamphlet written in the early 1900s. And it was popularized when its conspiracy theories were copied into Hitler's book that he wrote while he was in jail. After his release, they reformatted the pamphlet for children and sent it to the primary schools. The theories are all the same. It's about Jews eating children. They don't have any Jewish space lasers, but you get the idea. Before we get into our next topic that we're going to tackle, I want to tell a personal story. When you're a nursing student, you spend a lot of time in clinical. I did many hours of clinicals in locked psych units. And I want to tell you about one lady that was there when I was. To protect the living, I'm not going to reveal any personal data about her, but she compulsively ate napkins, paper towels, Kleenex, toilet paper, anything that she could get her hands on that she could shove in her mouth. The staff tried to hide it all from her, Uh, For the few days that she was there until they could get her meds stabilized, that she would stop doing that. The staff did all they could to hide 
all the Kleenex from her um, while she was there, while her Medicaid covered her being in a locked unit, while they got her meds stabilized so that she would not do that. And she was a fighter. She would see a box of Kleenexes and sprint towards them, and it would take two grown men to get it away from her. The end of this little anecdote is really sad because in the end, she won. Uh, She got a box of Kleenex, hid it in her room, and suffocated herself with them. She ate the Kleenex until she could not breathe anymore. And I'm not telling you this story to depress you. I'm telling you this story because I want you to understand that the human brain is complicated. When the chemicals in your brain get messed up for whatever reason, people do unbelievably destructive things. A lot of people ask me when we're talking about the alt-right or people who get radicalized online, if you think mental illness is part of the reason that people get radicalized, how are they any different than those people that join ISIS online? And the difference is is that ISIS and Al-Qaeda have no real power here. There is no hate group involved when the FBI is entrapping vulnerable, lonely men to get money. However, white supremacy does have power here. That is what separates the alt-right into its own category. Emmanuel Lutchman was a poor, homeless black man that the FBI drove to Walmart and ran interference so that, he did, so that he did not get arrested while he was buying a knife. Dylan Roof, however, a clean-cut white guy that wants to start a race war, he has access to unbelievable weapons with very little interference from the state. Those people are just as mentally ill. However, they are actually dangerous to marginalized people because of the particular brand of mental illness that they have tapped into this country is built on. If you have someone in your family that sympathizes with the alt-right, do what you can to break the cycle. Do a better job of hiding the Kleenexes. We don't have a lot of infrastructure for mental health in this country. And that is why stuff like this is so dangerous. And if you are a person that sympathizes with that movement, law enforcement has noticed you. If someone cool joins your group and they have money, plans, transportation, and weapons, that person is a fed. Don't let them convince you to hurt anybody and get help. Laws written to control dangerous white behavior will disproportionately affect the poor, the brown, and the marginalized because the power dynamics in the United States are so skewed towards wealthy white people. Just like all the school shooting laws did not reduce school shootings but led to unbelievable consequences for young black men, be careful what you call for. Do you know who is particularly good at expanding the surveillance and carceral state? Joe Biden. He has done it before. Please don't take this as a sign that I support Donald Trump. Donald Trump is a sleazy old businessman who had no business being in the halls of power. But what I am saying is, I don't have a good answer on how to move forward to protect marginalized communities from dangerous whites without using law enforcement, but I wish that I did. Because I feel like this, when I was researching for this particular episode, a lot of the stuff with the FBI and trapping people and the QAnon stuff and the all that kind of online radicalization became important as I was doing the research for this particular episode because of what happened at the Capitol. And I don't want it to detract from the fact that we normally talk about just marginalized communities, that there is no risk in protecting them. And using your voice to protect them. However, this last part with talking about people that are entrapped by the FBI to joining ISIS or Al-Qaeda, it's not a lot of people. It's really not. And if we were just talking about pure numbers, we should leave it alone. But what I want people to understand is that 
the criminal legal system uses mental illness to do a lot of things. And only a few of those are make money. Mm. And I, I, it is a weird direction to take this in and a little bit different than what we've normally done. But I really think the QAnon stuff is important because mm. when I hear people talk about it, they are either on two camps. Either they're like, lock all those people up, put them away forever, write laws to make sure that that will never happen again. And I hear what you're saying because those people are dangerous. Those people are people in positions of power. However, I know that historically that laws that we have written in response to white violence hurt black people and brown people and poor people. Can you give me an example? Yeah. So like the school shooting laws we wrote uh, in the 90s, early 2000s that weren't necessarily part of the original crime. But, but anyway, the gun violence, there was a huge scare of that. And so if a cop even thinks that you have a gun, he can kill you if mm. you're black. And so, and many times if you're white too, I don't want to say that that doesn't happen to white people because it does. It's just disproportionate to black people and people of color. And we've mentioned in previous episodes why it's disproportional mm. to mm. that as well. Or if you look at stories like that where the guy that got shot in the back seven times because he supposedly had a knife in the floorboard of his car, which still I don't think is verified, or maybe it is, that's not illegal. But because of the way our laws are written, police are totally within their rights to shoot someone if they think they have a weapon. Do you think that as the public becomes aware through things like this podcast and other stories, do you think that is, has potential to change or do you think it will always be propped up in the way? Well, that's what I worry about with things when I saw, cause like when I saw them walking into the Capitol and I saw what they did. I, it just made me so heart sick because I know that those people are not really going to be the ones that are punished by that. And so, so the fallout aside from the original arrest are going to yeah. be, and they're going to use the anger that that generated mm-hmm. to do several things. They're going to use it to increase the carceral state. They're going to use it to increase surveillance and they're going to use it to, as they always have done in this country, when the alt-right gets violent enough that we notice, they equalize it with what we see on the left. Mm -hmm. And I've heard it, I heard it on CNN that day, and CNN's liberal. They said, because what they'll say is they'll say things like violence from the right or violence from the left, you know, just any kind of violence. And it's like, I get what you're saying, but... Maybe our role as Christians should be to be the people who advocate to the left, not to be violent, but refuse to condemn them. Kind of mimicking what Dr. King did. You know, this it's Black History Month, so a lot of people are going to be quoting him and talking about him. And so maybe that would be a good way to introduce to people the knowledge that we kind of touched on in the last episode that may have struck a nerve with you that Dr. King review, refused to condemn violence from the left. However, he did condemn violence from the right. And I guess in his situation, that would be violence from a position of power versus violence from those looking to change. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, that's the that hits the nail on the head. If, if we existed in a power vacuum and power dynamics were not a thing, you could equalize left-wing and right-wing violence. However... 
burning a federal building because police keep killing members of your community is very different than storming a federal building to protect a billionaire that's in the wealth class. Like, that is very different. And equalizing them is dangerous. There are very different scenarios around that. And I think you're right that there's a difference in that. And it speaks to motivation. But I wonder how many of those people, because of the billionaire, believe that justice was not carried out mm-hmm. wrongly. Right. I mean, as, as it is widespreadly known that there was no widespread election fraud. Right. So there's some culpability there. But in their minds, do they feel like, do they feel justified in that? I think they do. And, I, I, and I'm not saying that those people are not responsible for their actions in the same way that maybe somebody who was marginalized that got manipulated into radicalization is not responsible for their actions. But because of the place that we live and because of what this country is built on, we have to consider power dynamics. And a lot of people refuse to do that. Somebody like somebody that's been in the news lately, Marjorie Green Taylor or whatever that, I mean, she stands on steps that were built by slaves and says, racism does not exist in America and retweets QAnon stuff. So when we talk about the criminal legal system, I think there's a couple of assumptions that, I mean, I made going into this and I'm, I'm willing to bet other people did is that that the criminal criminal justice system is there to protect the mm-hmm. public. Mm-hmm. And as we've touched on, it's, it's not. Mm-hmm. It's more along the lines of generating income. Mm-hmm. And then... And protecting wealth. Yeah. I think one thing, too, in that conversation with Zachary is a lot of white people like to imagine that if they'd have lived during the time of slavery that they would be an abolitionist. And I'm here to tell you, if you're a person that's condemning Black Lives Matter protests, even when they turn violent, if you're condemning them in any way, you probably wouldn't have been an abolitionist. And I don't say that to hurt your feelings. I just want you to be honest with yourself because the abolitionists were violent sometimes because they had to be because people are dying in the street. There's such a interesting dynamic when you throw in the violence of it all too right Mm -hmm. and outside of incarceration or the carceral state is the violence that comes through justifiable violence uprising Mm -hmm. why we have the second amendment and and how all that that plays into it and it's hard to actually think about this kind of stuff it's hard to pull out of the narrative that they try to force you into when you're a middle-class white american and so I'm going to bring it back to mental health and because we've kind of taken a little bit of a, a detour, a little, a little bit little, of a detour, little detour, which is okay because the stuff that we're saying is important and I think it helps because we all have varying levels of mental health mm-hmm. in different times mm-hmm. and how we are today is not how we're going to be next week. So with all of your research and knowledge, what is some of the the things that we can do to better be aware and better prepare ourselves as we take in all this information Mm -hmm. going forward. Well, and two, like, because of what you just said, that's, that's a really good point. Um, 
and some of this is just because this problem this problem affects one in five Americans. So it is a huge, huge topic that brings in our bad healthcare system, our bad criminal legal system, and just the poor quality of life for a lot of impoverished people in America. And you kind of have to tackle all three of those things when you're talking about mental health and the criminal legal system. And so even though in the first episode I said I, said I wasn't going to give any advice, maybe if you see somebody struggling and all of us see it every day, um, especially if you live in a big city where you might see people that maybe make you uncomfortable or maybe they're doing something that makes you uncomfortable, maybe think about other things you can do before you call the police. Thanks for listening today. This has been Expiration Date with Michelle and David. If you have any questions or thoughts, email us. Our email is expirationdatethepodcast at gmail.com. You can reach out to us on Twitter. At expirationdatethepo. Or check out our website, expirationdatepodcast.podbean.com. And if you have an opportunity, rate and review us and send us any feedback that you want. Thanks for listening. Have a great day.